Oh, there it is. It says live. Okay, we got to get going here. Go. Go ahead. Start reading. Okay. Shemek. Thor. Grab. Protect. Keep reading. I have double-minded men, but I love your law. I hate double-minded men, but I love your law. You are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. Away from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commands of my God. Sustain me according to your promise, and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. Uphold me, and I will be delivered. I will always have regard for your decrees. My, may you reject all who stray from you your decrees, for your deceitfulness is in vain. For their deceitfulness is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you shall you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your statutes. My flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your law. Okay, good deal. Good deal. And we are live, so it's the, I don't know why the Thursday night there's something that's been happening where things aren't working properly. But Sergio says finger. it's all good there. That's yeah. Gonna need a new finger. Um, let's see here. We got. Uh, I'm not going to read that tonight because I don't know how long this is going to take. So we'll skip the uh, This Day in Christian History and uh, we'll read a couple of uh, prayer requests. I only wrote a few down, but let's see here. Don has an obstruction in his intestine that must be removed. He was uh, prayed for last week. He's been going through cancer treatment. And uh, let's see here. Um, pray that his uh, that the Lord's will will be done in his wife, who's a Buddhist. And uh, I, I think he's from Japan. She's from Japan anyway. And they're looking for this to be a time to bring her to Christ. And uh, also him as well. And then uh, I can't give his name, but I was asked to pray for somebody that needs Jesus and a right understanding of God and evil in the world. How, uh, uh, you know, people kind of get caught up in the, the evil thing. Well, if there's evil, then how can God be good? And uh, that's... You know, just we'll talk about that a little actually tonight. Not a great deal, but uh, uh, there it, there is an answer to that. It's a, a resolvable answer, and it just takes some thought and it takes some contemplation. But God would not have sent His Son into the world to save the world if He didn't care about the world. So that's the main thing people need to to get across. And once they get that, then they can start learning all of the deeper theology on the problem of evil and where it comes from and satan and all of that and that's that's all not secondary issues but it's secondary in your need to understand the first thing is to understand that god loves you enough to send a son but uh we'll go ahead and say a prayer first and then we'll get into the class and heavenly father we do thank you so much thank you for the chance to meet here and to get into your word and we certainly pray for these people we just mentioned and lord uh we also know that darla still hasn't come to church she's been struggling with this for quite some time so we lift her up as well and anybody else that uh is just in need of prayer becky in colorado was at the doctor's today and i haven't heard but we'll pray that it all went well with her and oh lord we just we thank you that we can pray for each other and we can lift each other up and we just thank you that uh, there's healing in this world by doctors and by physicians and caretakers and there's also a healing that comes from christ and we look forward to that final healing when you give us our new bodies and that'll be a glorious day we're in anticipation of that lord but until then we just uh continue to uh pursue you through your precious word and we thank you for it and we love you and we exalt you and we do so in jesus name amen, amen. Update on
Uh, yeah, I was going to say Jay, too. I was just thought of him a second ago, but I heard something bang. Anyway, that oh, that was you. Okay. Um, Jay, who attends uh, here, uh, most of you know him, Black Hat Jay, if you're here on Sunday morning. He uh, uh, wasn't at church on Sunday, and that's because he was in the hospital with heart problems. And uh, he was doing well. He was uh, fine uh, the first day I went in, and then I called the next morning to see if they were still there. Oh, he had a setback, and so uh, he needed uh, some work and a couple things, but he was fine. And uh, they got him out yesterday. Last she didn't, night. Okay, last night, because she did not call, and I called today, and I didn't get an answer, so I know that they're out playing or something. But uh, uh, yeah, he is out, and uh, he, he'll probably not be at church for a while, would be my guess, but you never know. And uh, he, while I was there, they were, they were talking to the nurse about Jesus getting her on the right right footing there so it was you know what if you're in the hospital and you get to convert somebody to christ or even get them thinking about it and they come to christ later the hospital trip was worth it that's all i can say it was pretty special and she she obviously was very affected by uh jay's emotion toward her so uh okay let's see here we're in one corinthians we're almost done we didn't finish last week and we're going to finish in the first couple minutes of the class today and then after that jim has to do a review on something so I don't know how long it'll take, but it's got to be less than an hour and a half because uh, uh, that's all the time we get with the streaming. And so uh, we'll, uh, 16, 19 is where we're at, and then we'll just go from there. The churches in the province of Asia send, send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, as, and so does the church that meets in their house. Okay. Let's see here. Asia. Asia here is the general area of Asia Minor. The churches that were in the region obviously communicated with one another often. In their communications, they remembered those in Corinth, Corinth with fraternal thoughts. Let's see. As Paul traveled, he certainly brought up the many areas he had visited in conversation, remembering their needs and speaking of their strengths. Along with the churches, though, Aquila and Priscilla, who you'll see throughout the book of Acts, and they're mentioned elsewhere, wanted to make sure those in Corinth knew they were still on their hearts and minds. They had previously been members of the church in Corinth and moved with Paul as he traveled. And together, it says, with the church that is in their house, they sent on hearty greetings. Paul's final salutations are careful to include such heartfelt thoughts, knowing that such remembrances add a personal touch to the communication. If you remember from the book of Romans, there's an entire chapter of just listing name after name and personally speaking about people, and he's doing that a little bit here. In the case of this letter, it would help those in Corinth to assimilate all of his advice and instruction in a welcoming manner. The issues he has addressed were many and very sensitive in nature in some cases, especially if you remember like chapter five. You know, you got somebody that's sleeping with his father's wife and you know it, it just how do you handle things like that and then all of the other things that they wrote him about which were some things he had talked about some things that they had misunderstood and just on and on so uh the issues he's addressed were sensitive in nature for him to add these thoughts at the end in chapter 16 from other churches and people shows that they were held in a positive light during his conversations with them in other words, if he had said they're having all kinds of problems, they're a bunch of screw-ups, they wouldn't have said these things. They wouldn't have said greet these people. And so the very fact that he says these things to them shows that he was speaking positively about them, even when he wasn't around them. And uh, he said um, it's a tactful way of closing out this very important epistle. Uh, life application, speaking well of others when they aren't around is always a favorable way of ensuring that they know they are loved. 
Such words of favor inevitably will get back to the one being spoken of, or if they're negative, they will get back to the one that's being spoken of. So we need to make sure we're careful with that. Let our words about others always be salted with grace and charity. Verse 20. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. With a holy kiss. Oh, Paul has completed his short list compared to chapter 16 of Romans. It's a very short list of uh, those he singled out for his personal greetings. Now, in the same thought, in order to promote the general good of the congregation, as well as a deep-seated love for all, he tells them to greet one another with a holy kiss. This was and still is the custom in many parts of the world. The kiss is intended as a greeting, just as in Western nations today shake hands or possibly hug, depending on familiarity. In the Far East, a deep and respectful bow is given in substitute of this. Although Paul's letters are prescriptive, intent must always be considered. Is Paul mandating that all people in all churches meet one another with a holy kiss? The answer is no. The reason why this is important is because there are small pockets of churches that mandate this even today and even in Western societies. However, the intent of the kiss of greeting is cultural, not merely biblical. Proof of this follows from the first kiss noted in the Bible in Genesis 27:26, when Isaac blessed his son Jacob before he departed to Padan Aram. From that point, the kiss is seen among the covenant people and among those who aren't yet in the covenant, thus demonstrating the cultural nature of the greeting. It is used in the same way as we use a handshake. When Jacob met Rachel without knowing her in any familiar way at all, he kissed her. We find the following exchange. I'm going to take you to 2, uh, 2 Samuel 20 really quickly. And we find this begins with a kiss of greeting and it ends in death. Let's see here. 2 Samuel 20. We're almost there. And verse 9. Then Joab said to Amasa, are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. And he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. So you can see that the kiss isn't really always... <laughs> anyway, and what's that? Not a splendid thing. Not a splendid thing in that instance. In 1 Samuel 20, 41, David and Jonathan, close male friends, gave a fraternal kiss in accord with the culture before departing. And let's see here. We're going to go to Proverbs 27. And we'll see what it says there. Proverbs 27 and verse 6. It says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Sounds like Joab there, right? Okay, so you can see the kiss is a very cultural thing in that particular part of the world. This demonstrates clearly that the kiss is cultural because even enemies will kiss rather than shake hands. This is seen in these parts of the world today when leaders who are at war with each other still greet with a kiss. You see the Arabs in Saudi Arabia, that's how they greet you, right? Exchanging kisses with shaking of hands in this proverb would hold exactly the same meaning and intent. And as a premier example of this, We'll read the following exchange between Jesus and Simon the Pharisee. This is found in Luke chapter 7. There it says. Oh, 
one more page back. Okay, Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time that I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. It's funny, that happened to be what I was listening to on the way over here today. And of course, the most famous kiss in history is recorded concerning Judas', Judas betrayal of Jesus and reflects the sentiments of Proverbs 27, 6, which I read a minute ago, perfectly. It is important then to understand the cultural nature of this admonition by Paul, lest we get swept up into legalism over something which is not actually intended for all cultures and in all situations. I bring this up so uh, in such depth here is because when I had my Bible questions answered sign on the beach, I had a guy come up and tell me our congregation kisses with a fraternal kiss. And I said, really? It just, you know, that was one of the things that they were Nice. Yeah, very, very adamant about. We follow the Bible in that regard. Okay, well, there are certain things you need to think through. If a person with an immune deficiency were to use this verse in a prescriptive manner, which we had somebody in this church one time for several months, and we'd love to hug each other on Sunday morning, she couldn't hug anybody and because she had an immune deficiency. And so that would be a real problem, okay? Um, let's see here. That person could soon be dead from receiving the germs of others. Finally, the kisses in these and other verses throughout the Bible, which are between men and men, such as David and Jonathan, which I mentioned a second ago, are not in any way intended to convey the perverse sin of homosexuality, as modern liberals often imply. They take that verse and they run with it. They are merely cultural and welcoming displays just as handshakes are today. To imply this in their writings shows a disregard for God's order in the natural world. Life application, if you are in Rome, do as the Romans do. If you're in Japan, do as they do. It would not be appropriate to go to a church in the Far East and attempt to hug, kiss, or even shake the hands of another unless they first offered. If you're in a Mideastern area, fraternal kiss may accompany a greeting. In America, a hearty handshake and maybe a friendly hug is the custom. The intent of Paul's words is promoting warmth and harmony between believers, not causing offense. And I know this because I spent six years in Japan almost to the day, and you would never, never extend your hand to shake to somebody. It's just not what you would do unless they were in a business format where they knew that you were conducting business. Otherwise, you would either bow to them or let them bow to you first, depending on how old you are, et cetera, et cetera. And you would certainly not give them a big hug or a kiss. I mean, they would just be frozen. It would be the most embarrassing thing you could do to somebody. I was in the Korean church down the road here for about three years, and that's one thing you would not do. You just, they would shake their hands, but they would never, you would not see anybody in their hug. But when I was very excited one day, I gave the pastor a hug and he was as frozen as he could be. But he knew it was just Charlie. Anyway, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, uh, one of those things you just have to, put things in their proper context. When he says, greet with a fraternal kiss, he is not saying that in a prescriptive manner to all people at all times. There are many things that people will claim, are, oh, that's only cultural, in order to get around something that is obviously not meant to happen in the Bible. I hear that a lot. But this is one of those instances where it must be considered cultural because the Greek society and the Hebrew society is vastly different than other cultures of the world. 
Anyway, 1621. I, Paul, write this reading in my own hand. Okay, was that it? It is. Okay. It is evident from Paul's letters that he used what is known as an amanusis, a scribe, to write his letters for him. What seems likely is that he had extremely poor vision, probably from his encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus. It may have been something else, but we can speculate that. Because of this, a scribe would write as he dictated, and then he would authenticate the epistle with his own greeting. That a scribe is used is seen, for example, in Romans 16. We went through that when we were in Romans, but we'll go there really quickly, where he says, uh, I, Tertius, wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. So we know that he had nominusis, which was doing it, and he stopped and gave his own greeting in that particular epistle. And so, as in several, several other letters, a personal greeting from Paul is given. Other examples are found, and I'll take you to each one of them. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 17, where it says, 3.17, the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. So we know that he didn't write the epistle because this is something that I'm doing extra so that you know I have authenticated. And in Colossians 4, verse 18, he says this, this salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. So he had Namanusis there as well. In Galatians 6.11, he tells us something that is very telling. He says, uh, uh, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Okay, so he's telling us something there. There is an added thought, which is worthy of note. Some take this to mean that he wrote all of the Galatians. Okay, all the letter. Others that he simply signed the letter in this way. Whichever is the case, the large letters seem to indicate a person with weak eyes. It also gave him easily recognized writings which would authenticate his authorship. This is important because it appears Paul was worried that someone may try or actually did try to forge a letter from him as it appears in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where he says this. 2 Thessalonians... Oh, I'm in Timothy still. Okay, 2 Thessalonians 2. And then he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So somebody was obviously trying to get himself in there. And we can... Uh, am I going to talk about this here? I don't know. If I won't, I'll get to it in a second. Paul, life application. Paul bore a thorn in the flesh, which he petitioned the Lord to remove from him. It is speculated that this is referring to his bad eyesight. The truth is that the Lord could have healed him, but he chose not to, stating the reason that my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. In this, there is also the truth that Paul's letters were easily identifiable, and therefore forged letters would be known as false. If you carry a perceived deficiency of some sort, the Lord can and will work with it to his glory. Rather than mourn over your deficiencies, exalt in them, knowing that they have placed you in a particular position for reasons that he is pleased to work through. So don't be thinking that just because you have something that limits you, it's a limitation on what God can do with you. I love to cite Johnny Erickson Tata. If you know who she is, she's talked to thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people around the world. She's had wheelchair ministries in Vietnam. She's done things all over the place and she is a quadriplegic. It takes her three hours to get out of bed and get ready in the morning. 
and her husband has to do all of it. So you can see that people can be used even with their own deficiencies. But going back to Paul, which I didn't elaborate on, you know, Paul, wherever he is in the book of Acts, it always says he's conducted. Somebody took him to the harbor. Somebody took him there. Somebody led him there. He was always being conducted by somebody. And then the Galatians, he said to the Galatians, you know, you would have ripped out your eyes and given them to me. What's happened to you, right? He's brought up the eyes. Like that's a point that maybe if they could have given them their good eyes to help the apostle along, they would have done it. And then he was in the same room with the high priest. And he said, uh, you know, the Lord will get you, you whitewashed wall. And they said, you dare revile the God's high priest? And he said, I didn't know it was the high priest. You know, he could have been kidding or he could have been serious and said, you know, my eyes, I just can't see that well. So it's a very good argument that Paul had bad eyesight. There are other instances as well that aren't coming to mind, but uh, uh, it, it's a good argument that he probably just suffered from really bad eyesight and that was his thorn in the flesh or it could have been something else. But either way, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, curse be on him. Okay, this seems like an unusually harsh sentiment for Paul to introduce as he concludes his letter. But the entire content of the letter has been of doctrine, correction, and reproof. In chapter 14, 15, he clearly laid out the truth of Christ's ministry, from the gospel itself all the way through to its implication for man. If man accepts the gospel, he moves from death to life. Does man accept the gospel or is the gospel forced on him? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Okay. So, it's, uh, if not, if he doesn't move from death to life, if not, he remains spiritually dead, something we'll talk about in a few minutes, and he will be destroyed, just as death in Hades will be destroyed. That means the lake of fire. As an indication of Paul's intent for the love, uh, the word for love here is phileo, it's not agape. This is a warm sort of love spoken of rather than the deeper godly and reverent love which agape normally refers to. And so to understand Paul's intent, we can first go back to verse 20, which said, greet one another with a holy kiss. In that verse, the word for kiss is philema. It's a word with the same root as phileo. Paul is probably tying these two words together in an emotional way. The body of believers is to have the same heart for the Lord as they have for one another. It is not enough to be a tightly knit group of people who work well together but to be one that is committed to the work and love of the Lord. If believers are willing to kiss one another and yet not kiss the Son, then their love is a misdirected love. In such an instance, Paul says, let him be accursed. The word from which that is translated, anybody? Anathema. Anathema. Thank you. Probably, properly, it means a thing devoted to God. In the Old Testament, the word would be harem. Okay, it's something devoted to God. It can be good, it can be bad, but it is devoted to God. The implication, a city, when a city is harem, it is devoted to God. Nothing is to be taken out of that city. Absolutely nothing. Every single living thing is to be killed and every single thing is to be burnt. It's to be a pile of rubbish when they're done with it. That is the, the thought of harem or here in this case, anathema. So there is to be no association with such a person within the fellowship because he has no true part in the fellowship. Finally, Paul closes the thought with, O Lord, come. It is translated from the Aramaic words, there you go, Maranatha. Marana and Tha, actually, it's two separate words. Taken together, we say Maranatha, meaning Lord, come. Some translators use them in the past tense. Our Lord has come. 
others in the future. Our Lord is coming. Others simply use the Aramaic to avoid choosing one over the other. So the Bible will just simply say Maranatha. They'll transliterate it for you. The Lord has come and the Lord is coming again. Whichever Paul was thinking, he has proclaimed it after pronouncing his curse. And because of this, the Geneva Bible gives this thought. Let him be accursed even to the coming of the Lord. That is to say, to the day of his death, even forever. Life application. There are times where imprecations are appropriate. As a matter of fact, most of the Psalms, I'd say probably uh, 70 or 80 or 90 of them, maybe more, are Psalms of imprecation. If you read them, he's not asking the Lord to bless anybody. He's saying, curse these people, Lord, break their teeth in their mouth and destroy them from among the living and on and on and on. A large part of the Psalms are that way. So you have these imprecations. Far too many Christians fail to relay the truly serious nature of the gospel. There's one path to God and only one. Without Jesus Christ, there is only death and hell ahead. For those who understand this and yet fail to love the Lord, they are to be treated as outsiders in relation to the church. Unless they change their hearts towards him, they are and they stand accursed. Okay, 1623. Grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. As with all of the epistles, Paul adds into his closing salutation a blessing, which is a petition for divine favor to be upon his audience. In the Greek, there is a definite article in front of the word grace, the grace. Quite often, English translations will insert the for clarity, but it may or may not be in the Greek. However, here it is. There, the, the grace is different than saying something like, may grace from the Lord Jesus be with you. Paul is asking for a divine impartation of this attribute of the Lord to rest upon those in Corinth and thus us if we're reading this letter and to sustain them and us in their walk. It must be truly considered that those who are not obedient to the epistle are to be excluded from this petition. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, as I mentioned a second ago, he wrote concerning a disobedient congregant, saying to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It should be obvious that until this person is willing to adhere to the sound instruction of the epistle, this petition for divine grace is not intended for him. And yet at the same time, we all fall short in one precept or another. Therefore, it must be considered that it is for those who earnestly strive for adherence to it, even if they do fall, fall short of it. Okay, I talked to one of my friends just this past week, and we talked about that. He goes through the same struggles that probably everybody in here says or denies that they do, but it's in their head. You got things in your head that you just can't get out, or you have past addictions which just want to creep up on you. And all of these things are striving against you and your flesh. And he says, I just feel like I'm in this dark place. I, I just feel like I'm not right with the Lord. And I said, do you talk to him about it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm talking to him. I'm remorseful over the thoughts in my head. And I said, then you're demonstrating faith because you can't feel that way if you don't have faith that the Lord is there evaluating you. And I said, you're being judged based on your faith. You're not being judged based on what you're thinking, which you can't help your thoughts sometimes. They just come in and they rob you of your joy. You're being based on your faith. And I told him, anything you do in this life, I don't care if you give money, like I'd love to bring the guy up, Bill Gates. He's given away millions and maybe billions of dollars to AIDS research. And he's not going to get a single reward for having done that. Nothing. He'll get zero because he's not doing it in faith of the Lord Christ. 
for whatever reason he's doing it. It may be because he wants people to recognize him. He may want a nice thing on his tombstone when he dies. I have no idea what his reasoning is, but it's not for the Lord Jesus. It's not for the sake of the gospel, and he will get zero rewards, okay? He'll get his reward in this lifetime, just as, as is expected. But people that do the smallest thing, and Jesus said, if you give a, a child a cup of cold water in my name, you will not lose your reward because you're doing it in faith. It doesn't matter if it's grand. It doesn't matter what it is. If you are living in faith, if you're talking to the Lord while you're working, he's going to reward you for that because you are having faith that he is listening to you. He's right there with you. Okay, that's I, I am as sure of that as any other point that you can glean from the Bible. Because when Hannah went down to the temple and asked for a child, she didn't say a word. Her lips were moving and no words were coming out. And the high priest thought she was drunk. And yet, when she said, no, my Lord, I'm not such a woman. She said, I have something on my heart and I'm expressing it to the Lord. That's a Charlie Garrett paraphrase there. And, uh, and he said, the Lord be with you. And she got her request. It was a request in faith. And she didn't do anything except just mumble words that nobody else could hear. So faith is the key in your life. And the more that you are in tune to the Lord in your faith, in your mind, talking to him and relating with him and everything you do, even if you have things that come up in your lives that you wish you wouldn't do, He's going to reward you for the faith side of it, okay? That doesn't mean you're not going to lose rewards for doing wrong things. You will. I'm not trying to say that in any way, shape, or form. But there you go with that. So at the same time, uh, oh, I've said that there, um, such is the nature of grace. It is undeserved merit. Paul, in one form or another, closes out every single one of his epistles with such a note of request for this divine favor. And even the last words of the Bible are very closely aligned with his words here. There John writes, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Okay, that's what he says at the last, very last. And you think about it, I say this in my Revelation commentary, is that God allowed a man to close out his word. That was, Paul, that was John. It wasn't the Lord saying it through him. That was John saying that. The grace of... The Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It was man's words, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he, it wasn't the Lord says, my grace be with you. He allowed the man to complete his word. And I think that's rather astonishing. Life application, the Bible time and again asks for an undeserved blessing to be bestowed upon those who pursue it, even if they fall short of what it states. I said in the prophecy update on um, Sunday, that I, I had emailed Chick-fil-A and I said, I'm not, no longer going to pray for your organization. I'm no longer going to support you and I'm no longer going to pray for you. And somebody emailed me and he was angry about that. Shouldn't you be praying for him? And I said, I think you misunderstood what I was saying. I'll pray for somebody that isn't right with the Lord, that they get right with the Lord, but I'm not going to pray for blessing on them. And that's what we've done in this church in the past. We've complimented Chick-fil-A. We've prayed for blessings on our president. We've Anytime somebody is right with the Lord and they are seeking him, we will pray for blessing upon them. And if they're not, I ain't going to pray for them for blessing. I may pray for them to turn back to the Lord, but that's all they're going to get out of me. So he misunderstood what I was saying. Undeserved favor, grace, such is the nature of grace and such is the nature of our gracious Lord. As you walk along life's highway, take time to contemplate the wondrous grace which has been lavished upon you. And then thank the Lord and praise the Lord for that same grace. Okay, we're going to close out the book now. My love. To all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. After a short introduction, Paul's words in this first epistle to the Corinthians began with grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ.
Now his words end in love. This is a beautiful example of Paul's ability to take the most difficult issues and weave them into a letter with painstaking care in order to ensure that they are never, neither misconstrued nor taken in an ill light. During the letter, he has gone on a walk through the dark valley of discontent. He has gone over jagged rocks of disharmony and over rough roads of bad doctrine. He has traversed through a jungle of immorality. There in the midst of it, the sharp and painful thorns of misconduct caused by the Corinthians to stray in their thinking. He also traveled along a highway of introduced heresy. With each step, he confidently placed his feet where the snakes of wayward thinking could not strike out and ruin him. After all of this and much more difficult terrain, he now arrives on the quiet and peaceful shore of a tranquil ending to the epistle with words of comfort and love. Such is the nature of Paul's heart for the Corinthians. He was willing to take himself and his doctrine through all of this in order to bring them to that contended place with him. May we so conduct ourselves in such matters as well. Life application, it is a time-consuming and difficult deal to mentor people who are caught in spiritual confusion. It is so much easier to simply say, they had it coming. But to take the time to correct others in faulty doctrine is no less important than bringing a person to Christ. The reason for this is that those with faulty doctrine may be a witness of their beliefs to another at some point. If they teach an incorrect gospel, then the hearer of their words will never come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. Therefore, correction of doctrine is as important as the saving of souls. And that's the end of the book of 1 Corinthians. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of 1 Corinthians and what a treasure it's been. So we ask that uh, you would help us to remember the lessons in it and to uh, uh, help us to walk as Paul has written out, as you have inspired Paul to write out, and uh, that we would do so all of the days of our life. And we look with anticipation to uh, 2 Corinthians starting next Thursday, and we just uh, ask that you bless the next few minutes in a different type of study that's been requested, and uh, we hope that it brings you glory and the doctrine will be set and proper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I have no idea how long this is going to take, so we'll just start now, and we've got an hour. Actually, we've got 55 minutes, and if we get done early, then we're done early. And if uh, it takes longer, then we just won't finish it, which I, I know we'll finish it. I'll, I'll whip through it if we have to, but uh, let's see. Here. I'll keep sitting down for a minute. Let's see. Uh, this is what we call the duck example. We've done it in the book of Acts. We did it in the book of Romans. We might as well do it here in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. Is how can you understand uh, the doctrine of predestination, which also entails the doctrine of election? And it's complicated. It's not an easy thing to, uh, to remember, especially. And you don't have to remember all this. All you have to remember is what is right and why it's right. And we use ducks on the blackboard to help you understand which is which and why. And we use a couple big words, which are actually very simple words, which I'll break down for you as we go through it. And, um, you know, people will often ask this question and they'll say, do you believe in predestination? And the answer is, I'd be a fool not to believe in predestination because Paul speaks of predestination, okay? Somebody asked me one time, or they, they uh, emailed me, and they said, well, you don't believe in the Nephilim. And I said, of course I do. The Nephilim are right there in Genesis chapter 6. I just don't believe the way you believe. I believe in a different interpretation than you. But I do believe in the Nephilim, just like I believe in the Rephaim and the Hittites and the Hivites and, the, you know, all of them. 
They're all there, but what is God speaking of when he speaks of the Nephilim? So, yes, I believe in predestination. Paul says in Romans 8, 29, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. It is a done deal in God's mind. Whatever predestination means, it is done in God's mind. Okay? Paul says believers are predestined right there in that verse. So there's no reason to argue if this is true or not. What needs to be established is what that actually means and how it comes about. Paul's words of Romans 8.29 are a result of his statement in 8.28 about all things being worked out for good for those who are called according to his purposes. He says that, and then he talks about people being predestined. Based on that, he says that those whom God foreknew. Now, here's a question for you. Does God foreknow everything? Everything. Okay, so he's speaking about a group of people that are foreknown, but he foreknew everything. So we don't want to make an error in thinking right at the beginning of this. God foreknows everything. He knows everything from the beginning to the end and everything in between. He knows every single cell that's running through my body right now. And if there's one that is going to cause a stroke or a heart attack or a virus, he knows that. Everything is known to him. You know, you look at, has anybody ever seen the comparisons of the planets in the universe start out with uh, an atom and then it goes to the size of man? And, you know, it's already so different that you can't even comprehend it. And you got a man and he's standing on earth and then starts pulling away from him. You get to earth and earth is this big and then it gets smaller and smaller. And then next to it is the sun and it compares the sun and it's, the earth is a teeny weeny little dot. I mean, earth is like Jupiter. You could fit how many Earths into Jupiter, and Jupiter's teeny compared to the sun, and then you get another thing that's bigger, and another thing, you get out to the red dwarf giant, which is so big that our sun is a dot next to it, and they say that it would take an airliner, and I'm going to get the, the years wrong, but you'll get the idea, an airliner going at 600 miles an hour, it'd take it 2,000 years to fly around a red dwarf giant. It's so big. It's just massive, okay, and then that's teeny compared to the Magellan cloud that's out there, and they keep showing you bigger and bigger. Okay, so God knows everything in every single one of those spots in this universe all at the same time. Okay, foreknew means that he knew, but he's specifically speaking about a group of people here. He also predestined those to be conformed to the image of his son. Those who are part of God's plans and purposes will be conformed. That's what the Bible says. They will be conformed. It is already done in God's mind. That's why we talk about eternal salvation and we hold to that doctrine is because the Bible proclaims eternal salvation. That's what it does. It will happen. Okay. God doesn't change. He doesn't think in errant ways. He thinks he doesn't even think the way that we use the term think. So I'll explain that in a minute. But how does it come about? There are a lot of views on, on election and predestination. Okay, and there are sub-views as well. You could have this one and a couple little different minor points. But what we're going to do is we're going to detail the four main points. The four main points which cover everything else in some way or another. Okay, they're based on a rational comparison of when and how things work in the mind of God. Okay, I, I will say this now and I might say it again in a minute. But when you think of God, God does not change. And that means he doesn't change at all. God is what is known as pure act, pure actuality. There's no potential in God. When we talk about God thinking, he does not think like we do. We think in one of two ways normally. We think either dicursively, which means I just looked at Jim and he's got this 
bright orange or whatever colored shirt on and then that chair is green and you know my foot hurts and and you know i need to get to the store one before i leave here and get home and the dog is sick and i'm thinking dicursively i'm just going random thoughts in my mind or you can think syllogistically and that means that uh that's hard that's green it's got chalk on it that must be a chalkboard this this therefore this okay each one of those happens in the stream of time things are going on in an order god isn't like that god knows everything immediately right now and intuitively he's outside of time and everything that has ever happened in this bubble of time or ever will happen in this bubble of time is known to god there's no change in his thinking he is pure actuality if you think of god as changing in any way shape or form you're thinking of the wrong god okay god is god all right so uh, that's something that we can understand there, and I'll talk about that a little bit more, and I may explain it again, but I'll talk about it a little bit more as we go on. Okay, the four views, there are four big words, which you'll understand very well in about two seconds. There's sub-superlapsinarianism, infralapsinarianism, sub-lapsinarianism, and then Wesleyanism. Wesleyanism is John Wesley. Okay, big word is very simple. You've got super, which means above. Lapse is the fall ism is a doctrine supralapsinarianism okay or you've got infra below infra fall lapsinarianism or you've got sub which means under the uh fall and then the doctrine okay simple words but they're just big words to describe something okay although the concepts are complicated a simple example of ducks in a river will help you along so that you don't quack your head thinking too hard okay <laughs> the wrong ones i'm going to explain first who believes them and why? Okay, so the first is supralapsinarianism. Supra, as I said, means above. It says that election or predestination is logically prior to the decree to permit the fall of man, the decree to permit the fall of man. Now, once again, God doesn't think in this way. This is just us thinking logically. If God thought in this order, how would it be laid out in his mind? Okay, so in other words, even before sin entered the picture, here's the fall of man. We'll get up here and we'll start writing this, and then I just won't sit down again, probably. Uh, fall of man. Okay, we're going to say this is the fall. Before the fall of man, I better show somebody falling off of. Ah, uh, he's falling. Okay. Ah, uh, he's falling off a cliff. Okay. Even before the fall of man, God had already chosen what he was going to do. Okay. So where was I now? Um, uh, it says election or predestination, God elected here before the fall, okay, prior to his decree. He had to allow the fall to happen. Everything is within the sovereignty and providence of God. He allowed the fall to happen for his sovereign reasons. The election of these people was before him allowing to do this, okay, before sin entered the picture. This is sin here. He sinned and out, down he goes, okay. Before that happens, election was made for all people. Supra means above, lapse, fall, ism is a doctrine, supralapsinarianism. This view involves a group of people known as hyper-Calvinists. We all know Calvinism. Well, this is hyper-Calvinism, okay? And it is also known as what is called double predestination. God predestines some one way and he predestines some another way. You'll, you'll understand all this in a minute, believe me, okay? It is held by a very small group of people. They're radical people. They are biblically unsound people and they this particular doctrine leads to a group of egoists who says god loves me and he hates everybody else that is what it inevitably teaches okay because because god predestined humanity here before the fall happened 
all right? Before he permitted the fall to happen, I should say, he therefore elected some for salvation and he elected others for condemnation. I'm gonna create this group of people here and I'm gonna create this group of people here. These I am going to save. I know they're gonna fall and I'm gonna save them. These I'm going to create just to be destroyed. He hates them. He actually hates them. He created them for condemnation. That's what that teaches, okay? He created them saved or condemned before the fall, okay? That is their state. They have no choice in the matter. This means that God provides and he applies salvation only for the elect. We'll say these are the, we'll put them on the left because it's such a bad view that we'll call them the elect on the left. Normally they'd be on the right. Okay, these are the elect. Okay, that's their state. All right, he applies salvation only for them. And this is a doctrine known as limited atonement. The atonement of Jesus Christ is limited to a certain group of people, them only and nobody else. They're all excluded. We're just going to erase them out of there. Okay, Christ's Atonement is limited only to those who are elected, and it applies both potentially and actually only to this group of people here. All right? To explain, we're going to go to Ducks in a River now, so I need to get out my eraser. You'll see, it all makes sense in a second. You'll say, oh, I get that. All right? We got a pond, this beautiful pond up here, and we got all these ducks in it. I better put a head on them so that you know they're really ducks. There are all kinds of ducks in here, and they're in this beautiful pond, okay? God creates a pond and he creates the ducks. He puts the ducks into the pond. But after the ducks enter the pond, guess what happens? There's a, a, an earthquake, a cataclysm, and the pond starts draining, okay? Pond's draining. What's gonna happen to the ducks? They're gonna go out into the river, okay? That's the fall of man, that cataclysm right there, all right? But guess what? The river is heading towards a waterfall. That's bad news for the ducks, maybe. When the ones that he created for salvation come along, well, I erased my box of the elect. There they are. This is the box of the elect here. We'll say this duck is elect. We'll give him a check and he's terrible. We'll get rid of him. God created him this way though, okay? So um, as they come along and they go down the river, he sees this one's got a check mark on. He pulls him out and he says, I'm saving this duck. And then the other ducks here, he's got an X on him. So he's gonna, he's gonna obviously go to the thing there, okay? He pulls them out and he chose them before the cataclysm and he forces salvation on them. They have no choice in the matter. They're just simply, you're being pulled out. You're going to be saved. And the ones that he created for condemnation, this one, okay, the one with the X on him, he actually, he doesn't just let him go down the river. This is God's way of creating something that is to be destroyed. He pushes him down the river. He has created him for condemnation and this duck is being pushed to his downfall, okay? That's what happens with this duck. This is a mean and an angry God who actively hates some of his creation, even before he created it. Yes, double predestination means that God actually hates the non-elect, even though he created them. With this doctrine, there is absolutely no reason to do what? Jim? There you go. There's no reason to evangelize. You don't need to send missionaries around the world. You don't need to do anything because God has chosen them. He has created them for salvation. There's no need to get off of the seat in church. You don't even need to go to church, by the way. You don't need to do anything because you are God's elect. And that is that. You do not need to evangelize anybody. Why bother telling somebody about Jesus or sending out missionaries? God chose, and that's that. It ascribes evil to God because the evil that exists is not attempted to be corrected by him. It does ascribe evil to God. The second view 
which is incorrect is known as infralapsinarianism. I got it right here. I'm going to have to make a new duck example, so we'll erase those ducks. That's not correct. So we've saved all those ducks from their inevitable doom. Yeah, here we go. You've got supra, supra, laps, L-A-P-S, laps, in, air, E, and I'm running out of space here. Supralapsinarianism, and then you've got infralapsinarianism, and then you've got sublapsinarianism. I'll give you a hint which one might be right. And then um, uh, you've got Wesleyanism, Wesleyanism. These are the four main views. Okay, it's, they're just easier to just stick with these and not worry about that. You can write that yourself. Okay, those are the uh, the four main views that we're looking at. Infralapsinarianism is the second one. Okay, infra below. This concept says that the decree of election is logically after the permit the the decree to permit the fall. So here you've got the fall of man. Here's the guy falling off. Oh no, he's falling. Help me. Okay. That's the fall of man. The decree of election is logically after that. So man has fallen, and then he chooses. Sounds like a better deal there, okay? This concept says that uh, uh, it is held by strong Calvinists. You know, you go to a Presbyterian church or something like normally Calvinism is what they'll teach, okay? You could say Charlie Garrett's Calvinist, but if you did, you'd have to say, I am a moderate Calvinist. Okay, and there's a reason for that is because there are certain things that Calvin taught. You know, people get so upset when I saw somebody post this on Facebook and I didn't comment on it, but uh, they had a quote from Charles Spurgeon quoting about John Calvin saying he was a great theologian. And he was, he was a great theologian. R.C. Sproul was a great theologian when he was alive. He just got a lot of stuff wrong. You don't want to take the bathwater and throw the baby out with it. Okay, you want to make sure that if somebody says something that's proper and correct and they're right in their doctrine there, let it go. And if they have something that's wrong, then you call them out on it, okay? But John Calvin didn't teach everything that was wrong. I've cited John Calvin as Calvin in sermons, and then people have emailed me. What are you doing citing John Calvin? Because he cites things that are right sometimes, okay? You gotta, don't just, just because somebody is wrong, we're all wrong. Every one of us is wrong in something, or we would be, yeah, and I'm not, that's right. Okay, so God created all, created everybody here, and then he permitted the fall. Since then, he has and will continue to elect some and pass by others. He provides and applies salvation only for the elect. He chooses who will be saved, and they have no choice in the matter. It's similar to the double predestination, but it's not. It's just a different way of looking at how God works in human history, okay? Your traditional Calvinists, and I love to cite him, he's dead now, uh, R.C. Sproul and others are in this category. I cite R.C. Sproul because he was a great theologian on Christology. He had great concepts on the Trinity and all kinds of other things. He was wonderful to listen to. And when he'd get to predestination election, I'd just be yelling at the, the radio. I'd be like, it's crazy. Okay, but he did have some, some very good doctrine in some areas. Okay, this view still holds to limited atonement. We'll call it LU, limited atonement. Okay, same as the uh, double predestination, like the first view. Christ's atonement is only those who were elected and applies both potentially and actually, only to certain people. In both views, God loves only the elect in terms of salvation. Okay, a problem with that is that God is love 
That's explicit in the Bible. God is love. He loves everyone equally. There is no increase or decrease in his love from his perspective. Okay? Everybody got that? They're saying that God loves only the elect for salvation. Okay? We'll go back to the ducks, and it'll help us to understand what's going on. we got the fall. God elects after he allowed the fall of man. He created, allowed the fall of man, and then he elects those that he will do. Okay, so we have here, God creates a nice quiet pond. Same pond, same ducks. I know I'm not drawing very good ducks, but that's okay. All right, but they're all in the same boat right now. There aren't X's and check marks on them. They're all, but the same thing happens. There's a cataclysm and down goes the river. And once again, it's going to go to a fall. We all know that. The, the Bible ends the same for all of the views, okay? So he creates quiet pond with the ducks. He puts the ducks in the pond. After the ducks enter the pond, there is the cataclysm, and water starts draining from the pond into a river heading towards a waterfall. When the one he decides should be saved passes by, what does he do? He pulls it out, just like double predestination, but he has decided this after the fall of man, not the, before the fall of man. So it's not ascribing evil to God. It just doesn't know where evil comes from. They, they can't answer that in Calvinism. Okay, but um, so he uh, pulls out the ones that he wants from there and whether they want it or not too. It doesn't matter if they want to be pulled out, they're pulled out. Same thing as double predestination. Somebody doesn't even know who Jesus is, guess what? He's going to predestine them because he chose them. The others simply head down the river and are destroyed in the waterfall. See the difference between this and double predestination? He doesn't push them down there. He just lets them go. He knows they're going to the same place, but he doesn't actually push them down to the waterfall. Okay? But he doesn't bother helping them out either. They were simply not a part of his plan. This isn't a hateful God, but he's rather uncaring about those he didn't elect, the poor ducks. There's an implicit problem with this view, though, which brings it to the same level as the first view. God is all-knowing. The order of the occurrences, as I have said a few minutes ago, are for our benefit. They're not for his. Everybody remember what I said about him thinking? He doesn't think like we do. He knows everything immediately and intuitively. They're for our benefit and for our understanding but they are not actually how God's mind sees things. He knows all things at all times. To state that God didn't actually create some for salvation and some for condemnation in this view would be a very hard sell. Okay, so that's that page. God passing by somebody, this duck that he didn't pull out of the river, God passing by somebody when he knew before created them that he would pass them by is actually more than uncaring. It is like the previous view, showing a disdain for a certain portion of his creatures. Calvinists like to say that those who are not elect are simply not a part of God's plan. And that may be true, but it is he, not the poor soul, who might want to be a part of God's plan, who determines that it's so. God determined it, not the person. In order to justify this, many verses have to be taken out of context way out of context. Pull up John 6.44, and when you get to it, let me know. Entire doctrines, which are in fact taught in scripture, are also twisted, okay? You have to take verses out of context, and you have to twist doctrines in order to come to this conclusion, such as free will. That is taught in scripture, by the way. Free will is taught in scripture. But, are you there? Yeah. Read it real loud, because they need to hear you over here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me 
draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Calvinism will always cite that verse. Unless the Father draws them to me, they ain't getting raised. Unless the Father draws them to me, they ain't getting raised. You got that? That's a paraphrase. It's the negative of what he said there, but that's basically what he says. Okay, the Father must draw them, which proves that you have no choice in the matter. God predestined you in that way. That is taking that verse way out of context. Remember what that verse says. Don't even lose it because I'm going to need you in a minute to go to uh, uh, John chapter 12, and I'll have you read a verse from there too. And I'll show you how God draws them to him, which they completely ignore. Is chapter 12 after or before chapter 6? <laughs> okay, now I guess with the laugh, you already know the answer to that. Okay, so they're taking these verses out of context, and that is the prime verse that they will use, along with a couple from Romans 8. Um, but like the first view, there's no reason why someone would bother telling anybody about Jesus or sending out missionaries. Your job is over. Okay, I'm sorry, we don't need you anymore. They will dispute this, as our friend sitting right here knows, he's got a friend that he debates about this, but... <clears throat> It is the logical result of such a view. If God predestines, right? If God chooses us apart from sal for salvation, apart from our will, then honestly, what is the point of evangelizing? He's chosen you. It's not, it, can his will be thwarted? Can the will of God be thwarted? No, absolutely not. But he told us to go. He told us to go. That's absolutely right. Also, <clears throat> proponents of this view would say that if it was intended for all to be saved, then all would be saved. Well, how do you answer that? Because God's sovereign intentions must come about. If God intended for all to be saved, then all would be saved. So Calvinism must be true. Therefore, if it was not intended for all to be saved, then it was only intended for some, meaning the elect. You see how they're twisting words? How do you get around that? That's what's known as a false dilemma. It's a fallacy of thinking. The atonement of Jesus is an offering, and it is, in fact, intended to save all. But it only applies salvation for those who believe. And it, it does, can anybody quote uh, 2 Peter 3, 9? It. Oh, he's getting it right now. Go ahead. He knew where I was going with this. 2 Peter 3, 9. When you get there, read it real loud. Oh, wait. Don't read it yet. We'll say it in a minute. I got another thing, and but get it ready. Okay? <laughs> Calvinism wrongly assumes that the atonement of Jesus Christ has only one purpose, which is to secure the elect's salvation. That's what they say. That's the purpose of Jesus coming, is to secure the elect salvation. Jesus died so that we can be saved, and they won't be saved. That's their purpose, okay? In fact, Jesus' sacrifice, according to Romans 1, has another purpose, to reveal the righteousness of God in judgment. God sends his son to die in your place, but you turn him down. Even without the cross, we're already condemned. That's John 3, 18, right? Yes. Yeah. You're condemned already, he says. Okay, how much more just is God in his judgment when we turn down Jesus? So there is another reason. It's not just for procuring salvation for the elect. It's also for God's righteous judgment for those that saw Jesus and actively rejected him. Okay, the result of the idea of limited atonement is that it denies that God really desires all to be saved. This is contrary to his omnibenevolence, which we just talked about. God is love. And it's also contrary to the Bible itself. Go ahead and 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish. Not wishing for any to perish. But for all to come to repentance. Oh, that right there tells you that the logic of Calvinism is incorrect. Okay. 
To understand this view more clearly, one needs to consider the concept of free will. Do we freely choose Christ, or does God choose us apart from our will? The two options are known as monergism and synergism. Let me write them down for you just so you can... Can anybody break that word down while I'm writing them down? Monergism and synergism? Moner, mono, monergism, G-I-S-M, and synergism. Okay, you got a couple words. You got mon and you got sin. One or together, like a symphony, playing together. Okay, then erg is work, ism is doctrine. Simple, right? Monergism and synergism. All right, so uh, monergism teaches that regeneration is completely the result of God's work and man has no part or cooperation in it. That is what Calvinists would tell you. You have no choice in your salvation. God does everything. You have no choice, no free will. It is salvation by irresistible grace leading to regeneration and then to faith. In other words, and this is actually what they teach, a person is saved before they are saved. And to justify this, Calvinist doctrine says that one is born again by the Spirit. You're not saved yet. You're born again by the Spirit. After that occurs, they then choose Jesus Christ, and then they are saved. Okay? One could paraphrase that by saying, nobody has free will unto salvation, but God chooses a person to be saved, gives them free will to choose through regeneration, which is being born again, and then they use that free will of choice to be saved. But if they have free will to choose after being born again, and they cannot use it to reject Christ, then it's not free will. That's exactly right. Rather, it is forced will. Calvinism is convoluted, and it involves unclear thinking and the twisting of the Bible. Also, this view actually usurps God. If you have no choice in your salvation, then anybody? How do you know you're saved? How would you know? How can anyone make a claim that they are saved when they didn't have anything to do with their salvation? In other words, you're speaking for God by claiming salvation at all. Of course, their answer is, I believe after regeneration, therefore I'm saved. However, there are false gospels. The Bible tells us that. Okay, and people believe false gospels. There are people who believe wrongly and yet claim they are saved. When they find out they're wrong, they will change their belief, hopefully in order to be saved. So when were they saved? When they believed correctly. False gospels imply that there is a true gospel and the spirit of the antichrist implies that there is a true spirit. Belief must precede regeneration and it does. This is what the Bible teaches. Your faith brings salvation. Finally, monergism denies free will in fallen man. But free will is necessary for love because forced love isn't love at all. And if you are forced to will, then you are not freely loving. Synergism, that's the second one, synergism, on the other hand, teaches that we freely choose Christ and then are regenerated to life. This is exactly what the Bible teaches numerous times, both by Jesus' words, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever is forced to believe, regenerated in order to believe. No, who believes? Right, got it. As well as the apostolic writings, such as Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Having believed, you received the Spirit, which is the guarantee, the deposit until 
to the glory of God, the, the purchased possession to the glory of God. That's a little bit of a misquote there, sorry. An argument against this, though, is that the Bible says we are dead in our sins. I heard this a million times from R.C. Sproul. You're dead in your sins and that it is Jesus who restores you to life. The argument that R.C. Sproul would say is how can a dead person choose life? Any, anybody answer that? You're dead spiritually. That's exactly right. R.C. Sproul, who is now dead, by the way, but he's in Christ, I would believe, says it this way. You have as much power to awaken yourself from spiritual death as a corpse has the power to awaken himself from physical death. Well, nobody, I don't know a person on this planet that says that they regenerate their spirit. I don't know anybody that believes in Jesus Christ that said they did the work. Everybody says that the spirit regenerated me. That is what's called a category mistake. We are spiritually dead in our sins. We are not dead beings. God made us with the ability to reason, to choose, and to decline. In fact, this is exactly what Genesis 3 verse 22 implies. Mixing these categories leads to very bad theology, such as monergism. Go ahead and read Genesis 3.22, somebody, really quickly, real loud. Genesis 3.62? 22. 22. I could quote it to you, but I'm just going to let you get it. 322. Let's go. Um, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Okay. Free will right there. He's been given the knowledge of good and evil. The Bible teaches, this is uh, uh, concerning synergism. The Bible teaches what we would call anthropological hylomorphism. I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. We are a soul-body unity. Anthropological means the study of man. Hylomorphism means two natures, soul-body. I've got to say the anthropological hylomorphism. Okay, the spirit of man is dead. There's no doubt about that. The Bible teaches that. The moment that Adam sinned, death entered the world. Okay. Sin entered the world and by him death, or by it death. Okay, but the spirit of man is tied to the soul. Paul, speaking to saved believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, says that the soul without a body is naked. The spirit of man is made alive when we call on Christ, even if the body later dies. This is eternal life, and it occurs the moment that we believe. We don't become a soul-body-spirit unity. Rather, it is our soul which is now spiritually alive. Adam's spirit died at the fall. Faith in Christ regenerates that spirit. As I said, the spirit of Antichrist, which John speaks of, especially in his epistles, confirms this right here. The third wrong concept of our four major categories, I'm going to skip over sublapsinarianism, and we're going to go to Wesleyanism, named after John Wesley. This view says that God's election is based on his foreknowledge, but not necessarily in accord with it. In other words, God knows that things are going to happen, but things don't happen in accord with God's will sometimes. Hmm. Now, yeah. In other words, God's decrees are conditional and he changes his mind, which is impossible. You, you, all you need to know is the 12 first principles and you know that that is impossible, that God is act. He does not change. He doesn't think like we do. God does not change his mind. That would be the God of Islam maybe, but not the God of the Bible. This is the beginning of major error here, and it goes back to a guy named Jacob Arminius, who lived in the 1500s. His view denies eternal security. It reveals a God who changes and makes mistakes. John Wesley couldn't decide which was right, and if you've listened to my sermons, 
you'll know that he had two choices. He had Arminius and he had Calvin and he, Calvin and he didn't know which one was right. How did he decide? He, lots. That's right. He always cast lots for everything. He did it for a wife and it didn't work out one time. Okay. He did it for everything. Okay. When God says that uh, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord, it doesn't mean that he's going to decide things like that for John Wesley. Why? Because he's given us his word, which is already written, and we decide from that. Okay. So um, we don't get our theology from happenstance and chance. Instead, we get it from scripture. John Wesley, the Methodists, the Church of God, Mennonites, and others who hold to this view are wrong. Like the previous view, they believe that God created all and then permitted the fall. Okay, so we better get our duck example ready here first. We got, they believe that God created everybody. Everybody's created in one box here. And then he allowed the fall. Poor guy's falling again. He just can't get over it today. Okay, God permitted the fall here. Then he provides salvation for all people after the fall. Okay, God knows who the elect are based on the foreseen faith of those who believe. God knows they're going to believe. But of this faith, he applies salvation only to believers, but believers can lose their salvation. So God knows that they're going to choose him, but they're going to lose their salvation along the way because that's the way I work. I change my mind about things. For a duck example, and here's a duck example for you. We've got a beautiful lake with ducks in it. We've got lots of ducks. That one's a little too thin. Okay, there we go. We've got some ducks here. Nice little ducks. Five. Five's the number of grace. We hope they get it. Okay, so um, God creates the pond and then the river. There's a cataclysm, the river. And once again, there's a waterfall there. Okay, he puts all the ducks in the pond and they eventually end up in the river. In the, in the river, okay. And uh, let's see here. It's heading towards the waterfall. As the ducks come by, he leaves his favorite perfect duck on the shore, quacking for the ducks to come out. We'll put a cross out here. Come unto me, all you who are heavy labored, and I will give you rest. Okay, he puts them there on the shore, and he's quacking. Come on out, ducks. Come on. There's a waterfall up ahead. If you don't come out, you're going to get quacked up. Some of the ducks come out, and some decide they like the river. Sounds like the world today, doesn't it? Those that come out, however, can never know if they have upset the perfect duck and have to go back to the river. There's never true safety, and in fact, these ducks can't really tell the river from the shore. It's kind of murky there. The poor ducks spend the rest of their life, their entire life, after coming to Christ, trying to please a group of lower ducks that the perfect duck left behind. If the lower duck, meaning a pastor, says that they've been bad ducks, then they go back to the river again. Imagine being one of these poor, unsure, and ever-worried group of ducks, these poor ducks. Our final view, that's just wrong. God doesn't change his mind. He's not theologically inept in any way, shape, or form. He knows everything and he sticks by his decrees. Our final view is sublapsinarianism. It is what is correct. It makes sense from a philosophic standpoint. I got 15 minutes. Okay. Second, it makes sense from a moral standpoint. Philosophically, we can look at how the things operate and we can say, yeah, that makes sense. From a moral standpoint, is God moral? Is he just? Yes, that makes sense. And third, it is the only view which is supported by, guess what? The Bible, God's word. That's right. And it answers the question of why we fell in the first place. It, uh, let's see here. In the Yeah, it also answers where evil came from without ever ascribing it to God. Without this view, one is forever searching for where evil came from. This is a question that Calvinists must and do ask. They can never find an answer to it because their theology leaves no room for it. 
their mistaken ideas that God created everything perfectly, and so if man fell, then God must have blown it by creating a being that could fall. This is especially true because if intent to sin is evil, as Je Jesus clearly says it is, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. If intent to sin is evil, then Adam fell before the fall because he lusted after the fruit before he ate it. Remember the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the, you know, whatever, okay. He lusted after the fruit, and then he ate it. They saw that it was good. They had lust in their hearts for it, and they were told not to eat it. But they know that God didn't create evil. I'm talking about Calvinists, and so whence comes evil? R.C. Sproul would do great long talks about it. Where does evil come from? Answers figured out by theologians probably before the time of Christ. But certainly Thomas Aquinas wrote about it. Anyway... And then there are great theologians, even to this day, he just died a while ago as um, Norman Geisler from Southern Evangelical Seminary, where I went, he, uh, he uh, wrote extensively on this. It's not that difficult to figure out, but it takes a lot of thought. Okay, but they can't answer that question. Sublapsinarium, sub or under lapse fall ism. God's order to provide salvation came before his order to elect the people of the world. Here's uh, God creating. Here is the fall of man. Man is falling. Ah, down he goes. Okay. And then, that wasn't very good. Okay. Um, okay, so he fell. And then, um, uh, let's see here. After that, he provided him. And salvation, his order for salvation came before his order to elect the people of the world. So he gives the salvation here in his mind. God doesn't think this way, but it would be create, fall, I'm going to send my son. Okay. That's Revelation 13, 8. I will send my son to die, and then all who call on him will be saved. Behold the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Okay? It provides unlimited atonement. Atonement for everyone. Potentially. Potentially. But only for God's people who choose Christ, actually. If you want unlimited atonement, you can go down to the Universalist Church down the road. Go there one time. Believe it and never go again because there's no point. If God saves everybody, why go to church? God provides unlimited atonement potentially. He provides limited atonement actually. See the difference between Calvinism and, and uh, what we're teaching here, okay? This is actually limited atonement. Like the two previous verse views, this view holds that God created all, and then he permitted the fall of man. He provides salvation for all people, what you read in 2 Peter 3, 9, but the elect of God are those who believe. God passes by those who do not believe based on their rejecting of him and of his offer, which is found in Jesus. It isn't that he doesn't care about them. It is that they don't care about him. And you see that all over the world today. This view applies salvation only to believers who cannot lose it because God's decrees are unconditional. He offers to any and all who hear the message and elect respond. He desires all to come to him for his unmerited salvation and his favor. This doesn't mean that there's any good in us. Anybody that says there's good in Charlie Garrett doesn't know Charlie Garrett. That's all I can say. It means that we see the good in him and we respond to him. And that's what faith is. It's not stepping into darkness like that. We don't do that. We see something good and we come to it and we're saved. That is what faith is, is stepping into God's revealed light. And that is what this word that he has given us tells us. As far as our ducks are concerned, we got a, one more example. We got a lake and we've got these ducks in here. 
I know these are terrible ducks, but we'll give them five again. There's some grace, okay? And then there's a cataclysm, and then the water goes down, and there's the end, okay? God creates the pond, the river, and the ducks. He puts all the ducks in the pond, and they eventually end in the river because all are in Adam, all have sinned. So we're all in the river, okay? And it's heading towards the waterfall. We all know that. As the ducks come by, he leaves his favorite perfect duck on the shore, quacking for the ducks to come out and offering bread, which will sustain and guide them. There's a waterfall up ahead. If you don't come out, you're going to get quacked up. Some of the ducks come out and some decide they like the river. Those that do come out are protected by this perfect duck. If they stray, it is never to the river. There is a force field that will never allow them to go toward that terrible place again. These imperfect ducks are saved from that fall despite themselves. God was pleased that they believed, and though they may have forgotten it, 2 Peter 1.9, there are some that actually forget that they are saved. He says it explicitly. You can, there are people that forget. Do these things so that you don't forget like some have. 2 Peter 1.9, go read it. He never forgot. We do, he doesn't. They are eternally secure in the fold of his perfect duck. And this despite the crummy pastor ducks who come behind him. We all make mistakes. I have not taught everything perfectly, but God saves you despite my bad theology at times. The first two views hold to salvation only for the, the elect. The third view holds to salvation for believers, but that they can lose it. The correct view holds to salvation for believers, even though it is offered to all. And that when accepted, it is a done deal. This salvation cannot be lost. There is ample biblical support for both eternal salvation and salvation offered to all in Scripture. Any verses which appear to contradict this, and I say it every prophecy update, if you have a verse that you're struggling with, send it to me and I will tell you where that is taken out of context or somebody taught you incorrectly. There's no verse in the Bible that says you will lose your salvation. You're not going to find it in there. Okay, any verses which appear to contradict these views, such as John 6, 44, are taken out of context by the theologically confused Christian. Please read John 12, I think it's 42. I think it's 42. 32, John 12, 32. 32. Real loud. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So how did God draw people to Christ in John 6, 44? By Christ's sacrifice. John 12, 32 explains John 6, 44. If you give that verse to a Calvinist, they just call you a name and walk away because it, it, that's why the Bible is in this order and not in that order. Everything comes in a logical order, okay? That's why he does these things. He gave us the law before grace so that we could understand that we need grace. Everything is in order in the Bible. Okay, if John 12, 32 is after John 6, 44, and it explains John 6, 44, then don't listen to people that say that John 6, 44 says that we must be called by the Father. We are called by the Father through the giving of his Son. Okay, there you go. So having stated these things, Paul tells us that predestination, we got this just on time too, it's great. Predestination is for the reason that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus was the first of the resurrection. All who call on him are considered his brethren. We are adopted into God's family and saved, eternally saved, despite ourselves. Then I've made a couple notes at the end of this, which I'll read. I don't even remember why I put these here. Adam's freedom involved self-determination. Oh, yes, I do. 
How did the fall come about? I'm not going to get into any depth at all. If you want to know, go back and watch the early Genesis sermons, Free to Will and Who is the Liar. They will explain why the devil did what he did, why man fell, all of it. But Adam's freedom involved self-determination. Either Adam's sin was caused by another, which means it was determined, or it was uncaused, which is indetermined, which couldn't be either, or it was caused by himself self-determined. Those are the only three choices that you're going to fall, come across in the fall concerning the fall of man. Okay, I'll read it again. Adam's sin was caused by another means that it was determined. Somebody caused him to fall. It was uncaused. That means that something just happened without a cause and nothing happens without a cause. Everything is caused. Okay, or it was caused by himself, which means that it was self-determined. Be determined. God did not cause Adam to sin. Neither did the tempter force him to sin. He only led him down that primrose path. And see, in determinism, there is no lack of wholeness in Adam that would give, give rise to sin. He was perfect, and there are no such things as uncaused actions. Whence comes evil? Adam self-determined. He was in a state of innocence. It does not negate guilt. Right? Everybody understand that? Just because you don't know that something is the law, if you break the law, you are guilty. If I pull out onto, this is pulling out on the Midnight Pass Road. This is where my house is, okay? And there is a speed limit sign down here that says 40 miles an hour. And I pull out and I go this way. And I go 50. It doesn't matter that the sign is over here. What matters is that the sign is there. It says 40 and I should know the law before I get onto that road. I am at fault, even though I didn't know it was there. And guess what? Adam did know because he was told on the day that you do this thing, you will surely die. He knew the consequences. He just didn't know what it meant. But innocence is no excuse of the law, or it's not innocence. What is it? Uh, ignorance. Ignorance. Thank you. Igno innocence is an excuse in the law. Ignorance is not. Thank you. I knew something was wrong with that. Anyway, did, were you going to say something before we close? No? Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your wonderful word, and thank you for the truths which are found there that can be reduced to simple examples so that we can understand them more clearly. And Lord, I would certainly pray for anybody that's confused about this, that they understand that they do have an obligation to get out and tell people about Jesus. Because people of this world, you have given us the word so that we can hear the word and that we can believe it. And then you have given us feet, you've given us wallets, and you've given us missionaries to get out there and tell people the same thing. That's the logical order that you've given us right in the book of Romans. So help us to be obedient to that and to ensure that we send people to the farthest corners of this world in order to have them come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Without him, there is no hope for them. So we pray that you will continue to lead our hearts in that direction and to support our missionaries and to support people that are willing to go out even on the street corners to talk about Jesus. And we thank you for this opportunity. And we certainly, once again, lift up the people we mentioned earlier and any others that are struggling. And Lord, we thank you so much for the chance to be here tonight and to share in your word. And we acknowledge you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's see if we can get this thing to work tonight.